This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Tonight we look at a movie widely regarded as an all-time horror classic by die-hard fans of the genre, and that just happens to be what we are. This might not be the movie that introduced the creepy kid to the horror pantheon, but it is goddamn certainly the movie that took ownership of that trope from 1976 onward, even still to this day. And I'm talking about The Omen, starring the great Gregory Peck and David Warner and a cast of other great actors and actresses, along with, of course, the star, the creepy little bastard himself, uh, the kid who plays the Antichrist, Damien. And... What a what an influential movie on the genre and even on me. We'll talk more about that. Of course, I am your host, the maniacal minister, the occult, the devil, you know, the original motherfucker, the Rev, Dan Wilson. And I proudly present to you Seeking Human Victims Season 16, The Devil Made Me Do It. And once again, we're talking about the omen. And I have my own satanic cult right here at the helm with me. First of all, Dreamboat Annie. You'll see me in hell, Mr. Thorne. There we will share out our sentence. <laughs> and returning to the show, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Grizzle. You know, you could be too sexy for the White House. That's fucking uh, not the quote I expected you to go with, but hilarious nonetheless. And rounding out our panel, the one, the only, the great Muji. It's been a long fucking time, but my quote got stolen. You might have expected that quote from me because Grizz took my shit. <laughs> That's why you got to fucking... Uh, spot check the quotes in advance. It's called pre-production, Muji. You'll see him in hell. There you will share sentences. <laughs> God damn it. The Omen. I mean, if you're a horror fan, you know this movie. It's kind of part of the horror DNA. It always makes these greatest horror films of all time list. Not always uh, was that the perception. We'll talk more about that later. This also another one of those movies that I would put in my horror DNA. It's one of the first horror movies I saw. Uh, Might have even predated me seeing Nightmare on Elm Street, which is kind of one of the things I credit as like one of my first big horror viewings, along with a couple other things. The Thriller video, um, seeing American Werewolf in London on TV pretty early and seeing The Omen on TV pretty early. and I wasn't supposed to be watching it, right? Like, but you know, my parents had it on a lot. It was on cable a lot in the early '80s, and uh, so I saw this movie a fucking shitload of times. Like, uh, from when I was too young to even understand what was going on, up until I could really appreciate it. Uh, what about you guys? Yeah, I honestly can't remember the first time I saw it because, as far as I can remember, it just always seemed to be kind of pervasive on TV or you rent it with friends and they would play it and all the sequels on cable constantly, maybe through Halloween season. So it's just kind of always been around. Yeah. Same for me. Um, I watched the Omen a bunch on cable. Um, it was like a either 
is probably like a TNT. I remember not only watching the Omen on cable, but seeing commercials for the Omen constantly on cable as a kid. Uh, big surprise for everybody here. I actually have seen this movie. Um, my older cousin that I've mentioned before on the show, uh, that kind of, you know, I, the one that I wanted to be like, she was so cool. She uh, loved this movie. So, you know, when she was at the house and wanted to watch it, of course, I sat down and watched it with her. But that's like the only time I ever saw it. Right on. So familiar to everybody to some degree. I've uh, probably been a while since any of us have watched it. So we, we got us a nice rewatch in to see if our opinions maintain on it after all these years. So before we dig into the Omen and Dick Donner and Gregory Peck and all the other great components of the film, we will, of course, kick things off with a musical guest. We are glad to welcome back our sponsor to this season, Horror Pain Gore Death Productions. That's horrorpaingoredeath.com. And this record label brings us the heaviest in heavy metal and more extreme music here. And this week, we've got no different. The band is Crueler. And they're promoting a new album called Dead Live. They make their return to horror, pain, gore, death productions with this new release. Following up on a 2016 EP called Failure to Comply. Crueler reemerged with an ear-splitting, bone-crushing live recording of death-thrashing madness. Straight from the sewers of Houston, Texas. Dead Live unleashes eight tracks of vomit-inducing hatred from the grave, including covers of Napalm Death's Musclehead and Lip Cream's Kill Ugly Pop for fans of The Accused, Cryptic Slaughter, Dead Horse, Deceased, Demolition Hammer, Midnight, Morbid Saint, Repulsion, Sodom, and Toxic Holocaust. Here is Crueler with Nuclear War kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims. Let's dig on in. So, according to one of the producers and financiers of the film, Harvey Bernhard, the idea of a motion picture about the Antichrist came after a discussion about the Bible with one of his friends, a dude named Bob Munger. When Munger told him about the idea in 1973, he immediately contacted screenwriter David Seltzer and hired him to write a screenplay. It took a year for Seltzer to write the script, and then Richard Donner was hired to direct, legendary American filmmaker. Notable works include some of the most financially successful films of the new Hollywood era. 
And according to a film historian named Michael Barson, Donner was one of the most reliable makers of action blockbusters in Hollywood. His career spanned over 50 years and crossed multiple genres and filmmaking trends. He began his career in 1957 as a television director. And in the 1960s, he directed episodes of the series The Rifleman, The Man from Uncle, The Fugitive, The Twilight Zone, The Banana Splits, and more. He made his film debut with the low-budget aviation drama X-15 in 1961, but had his critical and commercial breakthrough with the film we're talking about tonight, The Omen, that would launch him into directorial stardom, where he would direct the landmark superhero film Superman, making you believe a man can fly, starring Christopher Reeves in 1978. You cannot overstate how important that film is to what ultimately became the superhero genre it was really the first film that brought those types of things to life um it also provided an an inspiration for the fantasy film genre to gain artistic respectability and commercial dominance donner later went on to direct films in the 80s like the goonies also a classic and my maybe not my favorite christmas movie but like way up there top five scrooged with bill murray was also a dick donner project uh he also i think re- the only uh i think the only christmas carol version that's better is the muppets christmas carol which i think is universally accepted as the best version but scrooge definitely number two yeah i'll, I'll let that stand <laughs> and then he does all of that and also brings us the buddy cop film genre with lethal weapon or at least the, the modern 80s version of that. Um, and then he and his wife, Lauren, own their own production company, and that was best known for co-executive producing the Free Willy and X-Men franchises. He also produced the Tales from the Crypt TV series and co-wrote several comic books for Superman publisher DC Comics. In the year 2000, he received the President's Award from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. And so Dick Donner... Hired here, off to the races, one of the all-time greats. This is the movie that made his name. Uh, it was considered by Warner Brothers, but it did not move forward until optioned by Alan Ladd Jr. of 20th Century Fox, a very famous behind-the-scenes figure in Hollywood. There was uh, some contention between Dave Seltzer and director Dick Donner over the film's message. They kind of differed on how it would go. Donner really did not want it to be so obvious. He favored an ambiguous reading of the script under which it would be left for the audience to decide whether Damien was the Antichrist or whether the series of violent deaths were all just a string of unfortunate coincidences. Seltzer rejected the ambiguity favored by Donner and pressed for an interpretation of the script that left no doubt to the audience that Damien Thorne was the Antichrist and that all of the deaths in the film were caused by the malevolent power of Satan, the interpretation that Bernhard chose to ultimately go with. And, you know, neither here nor there, not that I'm anyone to question the genius of Dick Donner, but I think you want to make this movie a fucking horror film. That's got to be the case. Otherwise, it's a mystery. It's a thriller. A thriller. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, not to mention that, and I don't know if, like, you know, the scripts would have been slightly different had they gone with the version where they try to, um, you know, not tell you for sure that he's Satan. But, like, a lot of the stuff, like, with the animals and things like that, like, just would have been silly. Like, the, you know... A lot of the stuff, like the suicide of the nanny, like all of that, if you're like, well, if he's not Satan, then a lot of this is just kind of stupid. <laughs> I agree, but we have to remember, too, I think we're in, at this point, we were in a post-exorcist world, so maybe the idea of ambiguity would have worked in, like, late 60s, early 70s, but once you've seen the devil, you know, in the exorcist, the cat's out of the bag, so I think they kind of had to up the ante. Yeah, that's a great point. This movie was often compared to The Exorcist in its early releasing. And it's also another one of those movies that, at least critically, initially wasn't exactly loved. More to come on that. Big part of this movie is the soundtrack. The music has been parodied many times over in South Park and The Simpsons and 
numerous films and TV shows, the score to The Omen is almost a character in the film in and of itself. The operatic Latin singing in the Ave Satani song composed by Jerry Goldsmith was uh, the only Oscar he received in his entire career. Legendary composer, did a lot of other stuff. We've talked about him a few times on the show, but this is certainly what he's known for the most. Uh, The score with the strong choral segment in the Latin chant is Sanguis Bibimus Corpus Edimus Tole Corpus Satani for... Uh, Latin, it's for it's Latin for we drink the blood, we eat the flesh, we raise the body of Satan, interspersed with cries of Ave Satani and Ave versus Christus, which is Latin for Hail Satan and Hail Antichrist. Aside from the choral work, the score includes lyrical themes, themes for playing the, pre- the pleasant home of the Thorn family, which are contrasted with the more disturbing scenes of the family's confrontation with evil. Just a legendary score, very impactful, uh, very strong. I agree. This is actually the first time in quite a while where I sat down and you know watched a movie for the podcast and thought the music really, really stands out and just really ups everything a notch. So I think it was a fantastic job. I mean, and it became like a cultural touchstone to where anytime, you know, there's especially like a little kid that has, you know, like, like, man, that kid might be, might be a little evil. Immediately, people are like, oh, duh, I know, oh. like, you don't even have to know the words. Everybody knows it. It's like Jaws, evil. Yeah, 100%. And let's talk about the cast. What a cast, of course, led by the legendary Gregory Peck as the father of the family, Robert Thorne. Bernhardt claims that Gregory Peck had been the choice to portray Thorne from the beginning. Peck got involved with the project through his agent, who was friends with Bernhardt. And after reading the script, Peck reportedly liked the idea that it was more psychological thriller than straight-up horror. So he agreed to star in it. He was at first displeased with the props and effects for making the death scenes, but was relieved to find how restrained and non-exploitive they were in the final film. And despite Bernhardt's claim, there were other actors considered for the role because studios were reluctant to cast Peck as a child killer. Warner Brothers thought the role would be ideal for Oliver Reed. William Holden turned it down, claiming he didn't want to star in a film about the devil. Holden would later portray Thorne's brother Richard in the sequel, Damien Omen 2, from 1978. I guess he saw the, uh, the box office receipts and changed his tune. Lose money somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, film, a firm offer was made to Charlton Heston on July 19th, 1975. He turned that down on July 27th, not, not wanting to spend an entire winter alone in Europe and also concerned the film might have had an exploitative feel if not handled carefully. And then apparently also Roy Schneider, Dick Van Dyke, and Charles Bronson of all people, were considered for the Robert Thorne role. He would have really fucking wanted to kill that kid then. You're too sexy for the White House. (laughs) (laughs) I think Roy Schneider would have been awesome in this movie. Um, I mean, Gregory Peck's good, and he definitely kind of fits the profile of like the type of like guy that is the star in a lot of these movies because you know you could definitely still feel like the shadow of hammer movies over this like just a tad bit so we kind of like that's what you expect to see in these type of things but i gotta tell you i think roy schneider is somebody i would have maybe liked better because gregory peck's good but um he's pretty fucking old to be like the dad (laughs) in this movie those were the first things I'd never thought about before when it's like he wouldn't I was watching it's like he's fucking 60 with a little kid. And sure, you can have kids like, you know, late in life. If the boys are still swimming. But um, I think it would have been a little bit more interested or more interesting to have somebody maybe a little bit younger in it. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I kind of disagree. I think, first of all, I think Gregory Peck did a fantastic job. And I think to me, like not necessarily like a classic film buff, but. I think it's interesting, you know, when you mentioned people like Charlton Heston, too, like a lot of dudes when they were moving to that age were maybe more open to doing sci-fi and horror, you know, once again for the booze money. 
But I think Gregory Peck was fantastic in this, and it's kind of hard for me to imagine, I guess, because I've seen it so much, anybody else doing it. But I think, you know, he's a fantastic actor. When you think about the scenes, like when David Warner loses his head, you know, I think that's such a believable reaction you see from Peck. And by that third act, how he just looks so haggard and frazzled, I think he just pulled it off brilliantly. We can all agree those eyebrows made him pull off a very convincing diplomat. <laughs> the legendary. Yeah, he, had, he had what I call uh, grandpa eyebrows. You know, like as you get older, like as men get older for some reason, their eyebrows just keep getting closer and closer to that of like really fuzzy caterpillars. I can attest to that. Yeah. Because he was, he was, he was a grandparent's age when he made this movie, but like, it, like they, they cast a shadow up onto his forehead when he was lit from below. That's how thick his eyebrows were. Of course, Gregory Peck, one of the most popular stars of the forties to the seventies. Um, in 1999, the American Film Institute named him the 12th greatest male star of classic Hollywood cinema. So we're talking about a guy with a real pedigree. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, of course, everybody knows, but he was in so much more. The Yearling, Alfred Hitchcock, Spellbound, Keys of the Kingdom, Paradigm Case, The Great Sinner, Hornblower, David and Bathsheba, uh, the uh, Ava Gardner in The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Uh, and I'm sorry, The Snows of Kilimanjaro is the movie. He starred alongside actress Ava Gardner in that. Uh, and then alongside Aubrey Hepner, Hepburn in the movie Roman Holiday. Uh, he was also in Moby Dick, uh, The Boys from Brazil, Gentleman's Agreement, uh, just fucking a million things. He was also active in politics, challenging the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947 and was regarded as a political opponent of President Richard Nixon. He uh, sadly died in his sleep. From bronchopneumonia at the age of 87. Life well lived for the great Gregory Peck. And we all kind of already gave our thoughts on his performance. Which I agree is. is, is I'm kind of in the, in the Grizz camp there. Um, then we had uh, Lee Remick as Catherine Thorne, the wife. She made her film debut in A Face in the Crowd in 1957. Other notable film roles were Anatomy of a Murder from 1959, Wild River from 1960, No Way to Treat a Lady from 1968, and The Detective from 1968. In addition to this film and The Europeans from 1979, she won a Golden Globe for the TV movie The Blue Knight, and uh, she also won a BAFTA TV award for Best Actress for a different show in the miniseries Jenny... Lady Randolph Churchill. And in April of 1991, she received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And meets a, a gruesome end. Almost meets one twice. <laughs> Both times falling from high places. Yeah, he had like an idea of how he wanted her to go. Yeah, didn't, didn't get her the first time. Second time out of the hospital window was the charm. And then we had legendary British actor David Warner as Keith Jennings. You can go back. Uh, he's probably on a couple of these old episodes, but specifically in the mouth of madness from the season six, John Carpenter terror timeline. One of our most well-received seasons in the whole history of seeking human victims. Uh, definitely dive into all of the history of David Warner. But it's great in this. Um, that hair, though, whew, that's that's something that didn't hold up. It definitely dates the movie. Yeah, I was gonna say like there was never a time when he didn't look old. So even giving him like the the hippie hair, it's like oh, I still wouldn't bind it. But nevertheless, you know he's just one of those dudes. No matter what he was doing, he was doing it to his fullest. So good role for him. Then we had Billy Whitelaw as Mrs. Baylock. She made her film debut in 1954 in the movie Sleeping Tiger. She was also in Carve Her Name with Pride in 1958 and Hell is a City in 1960. She soon became a regular in the British films of the 50s and 60s. And in her early film work, she specialized in blousy blondes and secretaries 
but her dramatic range began to emerge in the late 60s, and she starred with Albert Finney in Charlie Bubbles in 1967, where she won a BAFTA Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Uh, she would win her second one as the sensuous mother of college student Haley Mills in the psychological study Twisted Nerve from 1969. She continued in film roles including Leo the Last from 1970, Start the Revolution Without Me from 1970, Gun- Gumshoe from 1971, and the Alfred Hitchcock thriller Frenzy from 1972, and of course gained international acclaim for the chilling role of Mrs. Baylock in this film. Of course, she's the evil guardian of the demon child. Her performance was uh, once considered one of the more memorable of the film. And she won the Evening Standard British Film Award for Best Actress for this movie. Other films she's known for is the voice of Agura in The Dark Crystal, the hopelessly naive Mrs. Hall in Maurice from 1987, and... uh, also in The Dressmaker in 1988 and The Craze from 1990. She was also uh, in Jane Eyre in 1996, Quills in the year 2000, and she returned to film in Hot Fuzz in 2007. And uh, of these really, things is not like the other. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, but really pulls off the uh, the evil guardian well. Yeah, her performance was my favorite in the whole movie. Um, she, yeah, just does that. She plays the great evil guardian. She's almost, you know, like, kind of like an asshole school teacher in a way, where she's just got, like, an answer for everything, and it's kind of the meanest. She's got, you know, keeps trying to, you know, get Gregory Peck with, like, logic on everything that he objects to. <laughs> Always has, like, a good answer for everything. And she just plays like a menacing asshole really well. Yeah, I love the fight she and Gregory Peck get in at the end where, you know, they're both kicking each other's ass until he finally stabs her. Yeah, right in the neck. <laughs> it's uh, probably the highlight of the film. It, it's it's cool because, like, okay, he's the Antichrist. He could call on his evil powers to do something kind of silly and ludicrous, but they do kind of keep it grounded. Like, okay, this kid can't really fucking do anything, like, physically, so he has to have an army of minions to carry out his deeds and protect this vessel of this child who's, you know, just kind of a little sack of meat that they could easily fucking take out if they figured out what was going on. So uh, I really like all of that. It's kind of like reverse Harry Potter where, you know, Voldemort easily could have won if uh, he just killed the baby, but he was dumb and kept using that. It's like reverse of that where it's like, yeah, they could like, so like, I what I'm saying, you have to, is assuming you have Harry Potter knowledge, Harry Potter fans will know what I'm talking about though. Sorry. Yes, they know they will. No apologies needed. And then the star of the film, technically, is Harvey Spencer Stevens as Damien Thorne. Uh, As an actor, he was a child actor cast in this. Really only did this in one other unrelated film, though they did bring him back for the 2006 remake in which he made a cameo. Did not play Damien or anyone related to Damien. There's not a lot to say about he. Did he even say any words? And no, oh, he said, like, no, daddy, please don't, when he was, like, getting murdered. But otherwise, it was just, like, a lot of, like, staring. She did a good job at it. Yeah, yeah, I actually very much like his performance. Like he said, not a ton to do, but when they do give it to him, like, he plays a nice little kind of sibling shit. Um, Really good with the facial expressions and stuff. And then in the times where... Like, for example, where he doesn't want to go in the church and starts, like, screaming in a raging fit. There was a time in my life where I was like, nah, this is kind of dumb. But then, you know, once you have a kid, it's like, no, that's legit. So I think he did pretty well. I thought you were going to say when he was throwing a fit, having to go into church, that you're going to be like, same kid, same. And uh, then we had Patrick Troughton as Father Brennan an English actor who was classically trained for the stage, but became better known for his roles in TV and film. He was in several fantasy, sci-fi, and horror films, and was even the second incarnation of the Doctor 
in Doctor Who from 1966 to 1979 and reprised the role from 1972 to 1973, 1983, and again in 1985. And then we had uh, Martin Benson as Father Spoleto. He was a famous British character actor who appeared in many films, theater, and TV, and in both British and Hollywood productions. Uh, we had Leo McKern as Carl Bugenhagen. It's my favorite name recently. I don't know that it's good enough to go into the name Hall of Fame, but I goddamn love saying Boogenhagen. Um, <laughs> played by an Australian actor who appeared in numerous British, Australian, and American TV programs and films, had more than 200 stage roles. Uh, he was in A Man for All Seasons, Ryan's Daughter, The Blue Lagoon. Uh, the French Lieutenant's Woman, Lady Hawk, and more. Um, he also was in the TV series The Prisoner. She is an apostate of hell. <laughs> there we go. Somebody had to throw it in. Yeah, uh, I mean, short screen time, but you see him in the sequel too, so good actor. Motherfucking Boogenhagen. And then we had Robert Rietti as the monk. With over 200 credits to his name, he had a highly prolific career in American, British, and Italian entertainment. Prominent particularly in post-production as a dubber, both foreign and domestic. He often oversees the English language dubbing of foreign actors' dialogue in films like the James Bond series, Lawrence of Arabia, Once Upon a Time in America, and The Guns of Navarone. He is often credited under the variant name spelling Robert Rietti with a Y instead of an I. He had some pretty fucking hilarious lines. Just the way they like had him speak the broken English. There was one in particular that's fucking escaping me now. That had me dying. That Annie had dozed off on the bed while we were laying there watching it. And I said it and woke her up. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. But I, I wasn't I wasn't asleep. I was watching it with one eye open. But and that's I don't not a lie. What the fuck it was now. No, but. I don't either. I just, I've been sitting here trying to think. Like what I remember it was something like he used like he instead of Patterson ma- the fuck out of something. Yeah, like <laughs> instead of like making, he was like, Are you making that? He was like, You make or something like I don't remember, but it was along those lines. It was funnier than that. He like singular to plural something, and it it just was really funny. But anyway, I failed to deliver that for you. So if you go back and watch it and you see his scene, you'll know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, John Stride as the psychiatrist, Anthony Nichols as Doctor Fred Becker. Uh, many audiences saw him acting with Ronald Reagan, Richard Todd, and Patricia Neal in The Hasty Heart in 1949. Made his TV debut the same year. Continued with steady work the rest of his life. And then we had Holly Palance as Nanny. Now she's best known for her role as in this movie, surprisingly, but she also appeared in the horror film The Comeback from 1978. And beginning in 1984, she also co-hosted the series Ripley's Believe It or Not with her father, Jack Palance. Fucking love Jack Palance. No idea that that, was his daughter. You you said that like you're expecting all of us to like gasp afterwards. (gasps) I I gotta be honest, I was expecting a bigger pop. You are my number one. There. There's Jack Palance. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now you beat me to it, you bastard. (laughs) Pick up the gun. (laughs) Legend. Not even in this movie, just his daughter, but she lived in his balls briefly, so automatic extra cool points, in addition to a fine performance. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) I once had residents and those nuts. The Jack Pellant's daughter story. (laughs) And then we had Roy Boyd as the reporter. Motherfucker was in a ton of shit. The Saint, Counter-Strike, The Borderers, codename Colditz, The the Zoo Gang, The Sweeney, 
Warship, Doctor Who. What is with you fucking British fucks and the names of your shows? Survivors, The New Avengers, Space, The Professionals, Secret Army, Vandervalk, Blake Seven, Mender, Dipsy and Makepeace, The Bill, Heartbeat, and New Tricks. But he was also in The Wicker Man in 1973, one of my all-time favorite movies. As well as uh, Berkeley Square in 1979 and Asylum in 2005, as well as a movie called Biggles in 1986. Um, in 1990, he was in The Silver Chair, which is the final installment of the BBC adaptation of the Narnia books. So, Mr. Reporter was a busy man. And then we had uh, Sheila Rayner as Mrs. Ingrid Horton. She was in Room at the Top and was also Alex's mother in A Clockwork Orange. And that'll wrap up the massive cast of The Omen. Let's talk about the shooting dates and locations. Principal photography began October the 6th of 1975 and lasted 11 weeks. Wrapping January 9th of 1976, scenes were shot on location in Bishop's Park in Fulham, London, and Guildford, Guildford Cathedral in Surrey. The Thorns Country Manor was filmed at Pierford Court in Surrey, and the church featured in the Bishop's Park neighborhood is All Saints Church, Fulham on the western side of the Putney Bridge Road. Additional photography took place at Shepperton Studios outside of London, as well as on location in Jerusalem and Rome. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. So we talked about Harvey Stevens as Damien not doing a lot after this, but he was largely chosen for the role for the way he attacked Richard Donner during the auditions. He asked all the little boys to come at him as if they were attacking Catherine Thorne during the church wedding scene. Stevens screamed and clawed at Donner's face and kicked him in the balls during the act. Donner whipped the kid off of him, ordered the kid's blonde hair dyed black, and cast him as Damien. I'll kick Dick Donner in the balls. <laughs> Maybe his biggest claim to fame. The biggest issue they had with shooting the dog was that the animal was nothing like the evil hellhound that they were trying to portray. He really just wanted to lick and play with all the co-stars rather than threatening them and growling at them. So what we're saying is he was a very good boy. Of course, Hans was a good boy. Did you not see his face? <laughs> but I love the dog. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Oh, since I was a kid, I thought the dog was fucking cool. It's like, I want a fucking dog that will attack people that piss me off. Apparently at 51 minutes, when the fishbowl falls to the ground, dead sardines were painted orange in the place of actual gold, goldfish since Donner refused to kill goldfish just to make a movie. What a guy. Good for him. Jerry Goldsmith didn't want to attend the Academy Awards that year since he'd already lost multiple times before and really didn't want to go through the ordeal of losing yet again, but Dick Donner told him that he was going to win. Shoe win, without a doubt. But he was so nervous throughout the ceremony, he was smoking two cigarettes at a time. We mentioned before, he did win. It was his only Oscar. Apparently, one of the reasons that Gregory Peck accepted the role of the tortured father conflicted with guilt was because he hadn't been around when his son Jonathan committed suicide in 1975. Wow. So just some, like some like immersion therapy or something? Yeah, putting some real shit in this performance. Originally, Mrs. Baylock was supposed to be a warm, effusive Irish nanny, but uh, for her audition, Billy Whitelaw significantly changed the dialogue to create the cold, sinister character that subsequently appeared in the film. So that was a lot on the actress. Allegedly, Gregory Peck took a huge salary cut for this film, but was also guaranteed, guaranteed 10% of the gross. So when it went on to have a high gross... It became the highest paid performance of Gregory Peck's career. 
at around an hour and four minutes, the taxi driver who takes them around was actually the son of a mafioso in real life and was very keen to get into the movies. In one scene, he can quite clearly see, be seen sporting a large bandage on his thumb. That was because Gregory Peck had accidentally slammed the car door on it, nearly taking off his finger. You disrespect my son. That he did. I wonder if he ended up getting 10% of the gross, too. <laughs> he might have got a cut of it. <laughs> One of Donner's first requests was to remove all the suggestions of the supernatural, the apparition of cloven-hooved demons, devil entities, or witches' covens. The golden rule was that nothing was allowed in the script that couldn't happen in real life. The idea was that there should be some degree of doubt over if the de deaths were accidental or caused by an evil force. So that seems to be where they compromised. The technique of death by accident was replayed in contemporary horror movies such as The Awakening and, of course, the basis of the entire goddamn Final Destination franchise. But that's what makes Final Destination so scary. Very true. They actually debated on whether or not to even keep Mrs. Baylock in the film because the rest of the movie was so subtle and she was kind of so over-the-top evil. But... Uh, Donner loves her so much he couldn't bear to see her go. Apparently, Gregory Peck had been retired for several years before he decided to make this movie. To make the baboons attack the car, an official from the zoo was in the back seat of the car with a baby baboon, but the baboons had no response at all. They then took the head of the baboons, and the baboons outside went crazy. Lee Remick's terror as the baboons attacked the car was real. I'm going to assume they mean, like, the leader of the baboon pack and not, like, a baboon head. I assume, yes. Like, fuck that baby. We can make more of them. But you took our leader? That's, fuck that. That's what I was thinking for a second. It took me, like, when I initially read that, I was like, did they fucking cut a baboon head off and in the car? Like, she's holding it, like, come and get it. Right, like, they refuse to kill goldfish. Kill <laughs> right. Yeah. As part of the pre-release publicity campaign, they tried to heavily point out the significance of the three sixes. The movie was sneak previewed nationwide on June 6, 1976, while audiences inside the theaters were being scared witless by the film. Employees out front were putting up specially made posters declaring today is the sixth day and the sixth month of 1976. Hokey, though it was, the gimmick worked quite well as many a theater patron literally freaked out upon seeing those posters as they left the previews. When Alan Ladd Jr. agreed to come on as a producer, he insisted that Donner join. His priority was not to make a Cracker Jack horror film, but a realistic portrayal of a family crisis. The movie was originally going to be called The Birthmark, but a good chunk of the movie was filmed on location in Italy maternity wards, and the crew would put up signs saying, Filming the Birthmark, and the women's patients there would complain that they didn't anyone mention, mention of birthmarks in their maternity ward for fear of bringing bad luck. So the crew then started to change the signs to Filming the Omen as a temporary measure, and that actually stuck. Much better name. Yeah, The Birthmark ain't no horror classic. No. Of course, you know, there's the whole, like, documentary series about cursed films, and this is one of those that rumored was to have had a curse. Uh, Gregory Peck and Dave Seltzer took separate planes to the UK, yet both planes were struck by lightning. Uh, while producer Harvey Bernhard was in Rome, lightning just missed him. The Rottweilers hired for the film did attack their trainers, even though they were apparently great to work with the actors. A uh, hotel which director Richard Donner was staying at got bombed by the IRA, and he was hit by a car during the filming. Uh, after Pack, Gregory Peck canceled another flight to Israel, the plane he would have been on crashed, killing everyone on board. And on day one of the shoot, several principal members of the crew survived a head-on car crash. It appeared to last into post-production as well when special effects artist John Richardson was injured and his girlfriend was beheaded in an accident on the set of A Bridge Too Far in 1977. So, yet is another. Is Or is it all coincidence? It's like method acting, but for like buzz around a movie. 
Yeah, this one definitely had, I think, more unexplained phenomena than really anything but maybe the Poltergeist series. Um, apparently, David Warner was in bad shape during the filming of this. He suffered with psoriasis so badly that Gregory Peck took pity on him and paid for him to fly to Switzerland and get treated. Because Harvey Stevens was so young playing Damien, Donner found the best way to pr- direct him was to get genuine reactions before the camera. So when he's angry in church, he got his facial expression by shouting off camera. What are you looking at, you little bugger? I'll clobber you. Ave Satani remains the only best original song Oscar nominee for a horror film and the only nominee that was written and sung in Latin. Apparently, Damien was originally going to be called Domlin because Dave Seltzer had a friend whose obnoxious child was called Domlin. Dave Seltzer's wife convinced him to change the name. Well, thanks to her, because much like the birthmark, Domlin is not a classic horror villain. Well, and I feel like it's such a unique name that there's no way that that family wouldn't watch that and be like, is this fucking play about us? What the fuck? Apparently, Gregory Peck had a problem with double chins, at least on himself. He made Richard Donner reshoot multiple close-ups because there were double chins being seen. But, like, I get that, though. Me and Gregory Peck have that in common. (laughs) Richard Donner Donner in my life. (laughs) Say it again, Chris. Said I wish I had a Richard Donner in my life. (laughs) Reshoot some of my scenes. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Same. Uh, Donner and Harvey Bernhard asked Alan Ladd Jr. for extra money during post-production to hire Jerry Goldsmith, actually. They felt that his music was right for the movie after seeing him perform at the Hollywood Bowl in L.A. Ladd was finally talked into giving them about 25 grand to hire him. Amazing what this film is without some of the things that kind of fell into place. More than twice the original budget was spent on advertising and promotion. Let that be a lesson. $2.8 million. After finishing work on the film, special effects man John Richardson... Uh, well, we talked about that just a moment ago. Where they, it's a horrible accident there. The verses that Father Brennan quotes about the eternal sea are not biblical and were actually written from the movie. Or written for the movie, but the the details of the Antichrist rising from the sea is from Revelations 13, however. They definitely took some artistic liberties. Uh, Dick Van Dyke later said turning down his role in this film was stupid. He regretted it. So speaking, we mentioned The Exorcist earlier, so speaking of that... Ellen Burstyn hesitated in performing a stunt where Reagan struck her, sending her hurling against a wall. She wound up telling the director she would do it, but asked him not to have the the production coordinator pull the ropes she was tied to too hard. She wound up doing the stunt and getting injured, and she blamed Friedkin for permanently wounding her spine. Because of this, perhaps as a result of this, when a similar scene happens in The Omen where Lee Remick gets knocked off the balcony by the bicycle riding Damien, she adamantly refused to do the stunt. Donner, who was less of a maniac than Friedkin, restaged the stunt so that uh, Remick being pushed off the balcony was an optical illusion, and luckily this time, no one was hurt. The film's ad campaign warned viewers to take note of any odd occurrences happening around them. Love that immersive shit. They don't really do that anymore. They just, you know, assume everybody's in on the joke on fucking everything now. Give me a little mystery, goddammit. Originally thought about casting a girl as Damien because the casting process for the child actor was proving to be so difficult. But they did end up with old Harvey Stevens. Billy Whitelaw said that he was just awful on set and always a misbehaving little shit. He was just method acting, guys. Mike Hodges was one of the original people offered to direct, but he refused. He did go on to direct three weeks of Damien, The Omen 2, before he was fired over creative differences. Dave Seltzer said he only wrote the script because he needed the money. He asserted that he said it in London because he wanted a trip to London. He said of the film, 
Uh, he was flat broke, and he does find it horrifying how many people believe all of this silliness. It convinced people that the name ba- Damien was biblical and that the prophetic passage was a real quote. That is uh, sadly not shocking at all. Apparently the popularity of Rottweilers increased massively after this movie came out. The Vatican was very opposed to the making of this film, claiming it was being made solely toward ends absolutely consumeristic and economical. And as the Vatican um, came out about um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, of course it was made for consumeristic and economical reasons. It's, It's a movie. It's made to make money. The Vatican's, they were really early in on the anti-blockbuster. Apparently Richard Donner hated the first cut of the film, but was convinced by editor Stuart Baird to go back and reassemble it until he found a cut he liked. Another working title for the film was going to be The Antichrist, but studio heads had suggested something more subtle, which is where they came up with the birthmark, which thankfully was changed to the omen. A lot of the alleged curse stories are said to be embellishments done by the PR team associated with the movie to drum up publicity. This was Anthony Nichols' final film before his death. According to Richard Donner, he talked to noted cinematographer Gilbert Taylor into coming out of retirement to shoot this film. He encouraged Donner to shoot the film in Panavision. It really works. I think it has a really great look. Gregory Peck would star in another movie with similar themes called... The Boys from Brazil from 1978, even with the same outcome, but the boy, instead of being a clone of Satan, was actually a clone of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, but that's, like, more culturally relevant in Brazil. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Like, I've never seen that, but now I want to. This is one of two films where Peck is attacked by savage dogs, also in The Boys from Brazil. And little Hitler is the one that sets the dogs on Peck in that movie. Such a scamp. (laughs) So apparently this kind of fucked up. The zookeeper at the Zufari, where the scene with the baboons and the giraffes, etc. were shot, was killed. Allegedly, anyway. The animals apparently went berserk during the baboon attack scene. And when he tried to intervene, he was killed by them. This is one of the incidents that Donner and other people point to as evidence that there's an omen curse, but uh, there's no real proof that there was a zookeeper killed. It's just part of the stories that permeate the legend of the omen. So, yeah, I thought the, the zookeeper, the animal handler, was in the backseat of the car with a baboon or baboon head. Still not clear? Yeah, I don't know. Like, now with that story, I'm questioning. Was it a baboon head? Might have been. They tried to keep the deaths tasteful, real Halloween style, avoiding a ton of blood or gore or anything like that, even though we have a hanging, an impaling, a fall from a high building, a stabbing, and a decapitation. They all did them, you know, very tastefully. (laughs) And our final odd and interesting fact, the scene where Thorne drives after leaving the doctor was filmed not on a public highway, but actually using the Alpine circuit of the Millbrook test track, which is featured in motoring magazines and programs. It was also used in the film Scream and Scream Again, Tales from the Crypt, George and Mildred, and Telstar, the Joe Meek story. And with that, we will close the door on the auditorium. This is a well-known movie. Let's see exactly how well-known. Let's look at the numbers. Numbers of the Beast um, movie was released on June the 6th of 1976 in the UK, uh, June 25th, 1976 in America. The movie had a $2.8 million budget and uh, made $60.9 million in the uh, U.S. and Canada. So, uh, pretty good. I've seen where they said they used about three times the budget to market the movie, so... Very much the uh, the actual strategy Blumhouse uses now. You do the old low budget and then put a bunch of money into advertising it, and it worked. Hell yeah, it did. $2.8 million marketing campaign was inspired by Jaws, actually, from the year prior. 
with two weeks of sneak previews and a novelization by screenwriter Dave Seltzer and the logo 666 inside the film's title as the centerpiece of the advertisement. An early screening of the film took place in numerous U.S. cities on June 6, 1976, as we mentioned earlier. Ma- yeah, massive commercial success. I just blew away any expectations. The sixth highest grossing film of 1976. The critical reception, interestingly enough, kind of shitty when it came out. Um, New York Times called it dreadfully silly, but reasonably well-paced. Variety said it was taut. The performances were strong, and the script was sometimes too expository, predictable, and contrived. But it's good connective fiber. Roger Ebert gave it two out of five stars. Gene Siskel gave it two out of five stars. They both lauded the firepower soundtrack and memorable scenes, but thought the story was goofy. L.A. Times called it an absolutely riveting, thoroughly scary experience, a triumph of sleek film craftsmanship that will inevitably, but not necessarily, unfavorably be compared to The Exorcist, and that it was. The Washington Post said it's probably the classiest Exorcist copy yet, but as a summer thriller, it can hardly challenge the human appeal and impact of Jaws. Gene Shalit called it a piece of junk, <laughs> and Judith Chris said it offers more laughs than your average comedy. And Jack Kroll of Newsweek said it was a dumb and largely dull movie. Duncan Cooper of Cineast uh, wrote, Despite its improbable storyline and abundance of gratuitous violence, it succeeds in its attempt to frighten, terrorize, and just plain scare the pants off most of the audience. Monthly Film Bulletin described it as a matter-of-fact exercise in satanic blood and thunder. So, over time, retrospective reviews have been a little better than when it came out. You know, like I said, horror fans consider this one of the greatest movies ever made. So, Rotten Tomatoes, Modern Lens, Rotten Tomatoes has an 84% consensus saying that it excused SS Gore in favor of ramping up the suspense and creates an enduring dread-soaked horror classic along the way. That's how most people I know kind of view The Omen. It has a legacy. It spawned a franchise and a remake. We mentioned the novelization by Dave Seltzer. He augmented some plot points for that, changed some minor details. Um, it had three sequels, Damien, The Omen 2 from 1978, Omen 3, Final Conflict from 1981, and Omen 4, The Awakening from 1991. A remake of the original film, which is almost a line-for-line remake, was released in 2006 with Lee Schreiber and Julia Stiles. And Mia Farrow portraying Mrs. Baylock. Plus, there was a TV show spinoff called Amy Damien that aired on A&E. And so if you would like to own the Omen, Annie can certainly tell you how to do it. So it was released on VHS by 20th Century Fox Home Video in 1980. A VHS reissue was put out under their selection series in 2000. In that same year, a special edition DVD was released as a standalone, as well as in a four-film set that included the three sequels. A newly restored two-disc collector's edition DVD was issued in 2006, coinciding with the release of the remake. Um, Its debut on Blu-ray came in October of 2008 as a part of the four-film collection, or a four-film collection, featuring the first two sequels as well as the remake, but not The Awakening. Um, And then in October of 2019, Screen Factory released a deluxe edition box set featuring the original film, all three sequels, and the remake, and featured a newly commissioned series of bonus materials. And then they also released the new, the 4K restoration of the original film elements. So multiple versions out there, you can buy it by itself or probably for the same price with all of the uh, sequels or even the remake if you want to. Um, And I believe we watched it using a free trial of Cinemax. 
We sure did. The old Amazon channels free trial, the easiest one in the, the game. You just get your free seven days, go right in there and cancel it. And uh, Cinemax is a rare one. Most of the movies we're trying to find aren't on there. So now I get to enjoy seven days of Cinemax. Maybe there's something good I missed on there. <laughs> but uh, with all that said, it's time to get on down to final motherfucking thoughts and i don't have a ton to add here in final thoughts this uh it lives up to its reputation in the horror community in my opinion it's just one of those all-time great movies maybe it's because it's been in my life for most of it uh but it's like the quintessential spooky kid horror movie it's the quintessential satanic horror movie in a lot of ways just because of how much of uh, stuff that it kind of put into pop culture um it's uh the performances are all just fucking amazing like uh the the atmosphere is spooky as fuck it's just it's got a really strong and powerful vibe and presence i i love this fucking movie i've always loved it and no surprise on the rewatch i loved it again Oh, yeah, it was a it was a good movie. Um, a good sound, solid, well done movie. Um, it's a classic for a reason. Uh, I I could see uh, why the early the initial reviews would say it was that it was dull or whatever, especially after you know seeing Jaws and how not dull that was this being such a tonal shift um for being you know the big summer scary movie and then this is what they got i could i i I could see that um but it's just this is just a different like i said it's just different tone it's it's a different universe of scary you could say um i thought i thought it was pretty good uh like i said i only saw it once when i was you know way younger like sub 10 probably um so you know it's great but i probably i'm probably not gonna like watch it all the time or anything but it was good yeah i agree with all those sentiments um i don't know that i really have anything critical to say about the movie um if it were much longer maybe you would think it kind of drags on but i think it was a good you know hearing richard donner was trying to find an edit he was happy with i think the final product turned out really well it is longer than your average, you know, 90-minute horror film. It's a little bit over that. But I think it really does well in expounding on the story. Um, fantastic performances, especially Gregory Peck and Billy Whitelaw. Um, you know, like I said, not a lot of gore, but some interesting death scenes. Uh, yeah, it's a classic. Um, I'm kind of surprised we didn't do it on season zero with the horror classics. But, you know, you got to cut them somewhere. But... Yeah, this is a definite must-watch, and obviously we've all watched it multiple times, so have at it. So, I like The Omen. It's actually, it's not one of my favorite satanic horror movies. Um, to me, I I really liked it when I was a kid, and then watching it now, I don't know if it's just, I've seen it so many times, or if, you know, some of the feelings I had for it was just because it was on cable all the time. But, um... I still like it, but some of it feels kind of slow, like in the middle part where they're doing the investigation. I think that drags a little bit. Um, and, um, but there's a lot of great good in it. I mean, the set pieces are great. The impaling of the priest and the nanny suicide are pretty spectacular death scenes. Uh, the score is obviously great. Um, Damien actually being like believable is like a little shit is good because so many times the child actor just, you know, completely kills movies like this. Um, I think the thing about the movie that doesn't work for me and some of it might be kind of explained and how Richard Donner kind of fought for one tone of the movie, but, you know, didn't get his way with the producer is that, you know, Donner went on to be like a really populist filmmaker. And this was like kind of the time where the modern summer blockbuster was first born, but it was kind of replacing like, the time where like really like all tour driven art movies actually made like a lot of money. A great example is the year before the top grossing movie was Jaws. Number two was one flew over the cuckoo's nest, very different things. 
So to me, it kind of feels like Donner is kind of being pulled in between those two worlds from kind of like what he wants to do and what he got to do, which what he got to do, he still made a good movie, but to the next movie he makes a Superman. And that's where he really becomes like the director that we all know. But despite the things I don't like about it, you know, it still has super high points and it's still a classic and still worth watching. All right. Well, that'll do it on a lengthy discussion about the omen and we're not done with this season not by a long shot still got a few more episodes to go and we're gonna be back with more next week on the program next week on season 16 the devil made me do it we are looking at another one of my favorite satanic horror movies of the 70s. One you might not have heard of. It has a bit of a controversy surrounding it due to the fact that they used people with real hideous deformities to play the demons escaping hell. And uh, I just fucking goddamn love this movie, so I hope you do too, and I hope I love it when I rewatch it next week. We're talking about The Sentinel from 1977 next week on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims.